I, uh, I think it's fair to say that we, we live in a society that is uh, slightly obsessed with sex. It's an understatement, maybe. References to sex and sexual content dominate the media world in which we live, breathe, and have our being. I was reading this week how someone has made the comment that a random visitor from another planet would be forgiven for concluding that sex and the stimulation of sexual desire was for us the highest good, the greatest goal, and the most sacred center of life. Sexual images and innuendo are never too far away. They're they're found in advertising because, after all, sex sells. Found in music videos, in comedy, in magazines, in soaps, in movies, online. They're found in casual conversations everywhere. But alongside our culture's fascination with this issue is this disturbing trivialization of it. And then if you add into that the mixed messages that we and our young people receive from all directions regarding sexuality and sexual behavior, it's no wonder that confusion abounds. And what does the church say? What does the church teach about this issue? About these issues? Some would say... It says very little. That we're silent. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you heard a sermon on sex? Think the last time. And so as I attempt to to speak about the deadly sin of lust, I I really am am, am conscious of the audience, and so I am going to attempt to be as appropriate as I can be and I intend to be so please I don't want anybody to be nervous at all particularly parents but I am I am nervous about this and I have been all week because I realise that I'm dealing with such a vast and deeply important and and a sensitive issue that, that kind of unlocks lots of other issues and whenever you begin to speak about subjects like this There is every risk that people are going to go away and think, but hang on a wee minute, what about? And and you didn't really, and you did that, and so I've just been so conscious, and as I've prepared, and as I've tried to prepare and tried to form something and create, I've just realized that you can only scratch the surface of what is, as I say, an incredibly complex issue that is, for many people, a confusing issue. And I'm so worried that I might add to the confusion. So I'm actually going to pray at this point, if that's okay. Father, I do ask for your help. And I know I normally pray this at the end, where I say if there's anything I have offered that has been unhelpful. But I want to pray that right at the start. That anything that I say tonight that is unhelpful, that is just from me, will be incredibly quickly forgotten. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, right at the start, uh, I I think it's it's very important to be clear about something, and that is that God is not anti-sex. Sex is a God-given gift. We have been created as sexual beings. The ability to be sexually aroused and to experience sexual desire 
is a natural part of God's design for human beings. And we need to say that up front. And therefore, the, the sin, the vice of lust, is not the same as sexual desire. Lust is disordered desire. And I'll say lots more about that in a moment. But the first thing I want to acknowledge this evening is the goodness of this God-given gift of sex. It has been given by God to bond two people together into a one-flesh union. Plus, it has been given to God as the act to design to create new human beings. And so this is about love and life. That is what we're talking about this evening. And it's within that context that this God-given gift of sex between a man and a woman is to be enjoyed and celebrated. Take it out of that one flesh union. Take it out of that context. And that's where all the problems appear. In a previous life, when I was a youth worker, uh, one of the ways that I tried to illustrate this and explain this to young people, and I know there are limits with illustrations, so p- please bear with me on this. I was beginning them to imagine sex is a bit like fire. You see, fire in its proper context, like your lounge, your living space at home, even the fire pit in your garden, fire in its proper context is a great thing. It's a positive thing. It provides warmth. It provides atmosphere. It provides comfort. It provides enjoyment. It enhances life. Take fire out of its proper context and it wreaks havoc. It destroys lives. It ruins It robs. And sex is exactly the same. You take it out of its God-given proper context and there will be all sorts of problems and mess. God is not a cosmic killjoy when it comes to sexual desire. But he does know what is best for us regarding its expression. So sexual desire is a good and a healthy thing given by God. But lust is quite different. It's very different. It is a vice because it does not honour the fullness of sex. The dictionary definition of lust is this. It's an intense and unrestrained sexual craving. It's the excessive desire for my own sexual pleasure. It becomes about personal satisfaction. Lust makes sexual pleasure all about me. So at the heart of it, lust is purely selfish. It's a self-gratification project. And so lust thinks of or sees others as a means of getting that satisfaction. It makes people less than people. It objectifies. That is the problem with lust. Others become objects. Bill Hybels writes, Lust is the reduction of a human being. A person made in the image of God to a body, a thing capable of satiating our sexual desires. When we lust, we don't care if that person matters to God. We don't care if that person has brothers or sisters that love him or her. Or if they have kids, we only care that this person satisfies our physical needs. And you see, lust happens when one person treats another person as just a body and no more. 
They just see them as an instrument, so to speak, as a means to an end, not an end in themselves. And so lust is bad, not because sex is dirty, but lust is bad because sexual desire distorted in this way is deeply and cruelly self-centered. It's about me. And it's therefore destructive. Because make no mistake, but whenever lust takes hold of a person, it destroys everything. Their mind, their closest relationships. This is when it takes hold. Their reputation. Even it can destroy a body. It can lead to broken, can lead to dysfunctional marriages. It can lead to shame, regret, endless regret. And one biblical example of lust's extreme cost to love and to life is... The painful story of David and Bathsheba is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And this should forever stand and be remembered as a solemn warning against the deadliness of this sin. David sees this incredibly attractive woman and he wants her and he gets her. But his selfish, distorted sexual desire cost so much. It cost Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, his life. It cost Bathsheba the death of her husband and then the death of her child. It cost David a painful rupture in his relationship with God and then the subsequent loss of his child. And then the damage just kept rippling out even further. Those beyond were directly involved. And so Joab, a general in David's army, he became complicit to David's betrayal of Uriah. And the whole thing, the whole incident just spiraled out of control. Trust was broken. Loyalties were undercut. Relationships were damaged at all levels. And lives were lost. Why? Why? Because David entertained the deadly destructive sin of lust. You see, lust takes sex and it commodifies it. And so it just becomes a thing you do. It becomes a purely physical act that gets removed from relationships. Graham Tomlin writes, When sex is treated as only a physical act, it is reduced from the mysterious ecstatic union of two created beings who are bound together inextricably in a lifelong passionate bond to a matter of mechanics. And whenever we and our society begins to think of sex like this, whenever we forget or neglect to take seriously the reality that to have sex with someone is the most intimate of human relations, that it can touch them at their deepest level of their being, what we do with our bodies affects our souls, affects our hearts, it affects our minds. The emotional, psychological, spiritual impact And implications are intense. If we just see it as a matter of mechanics, then we are in real danger. And I'm not sure how many of you have seen uh, the film Indecent Proposal. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. (laughs) came out nearly 20 years ago, starring Demi Moore and Woody Harrelson. It's actually on TV this week. Some of you might have seen it, might regret seeing it. But in the film, a young couple 
As deeply in debt as they are in love, they're tempted by the invitation from a millionaire, played by Robert Redford, for the woman who's played by Demi Moore to spend a night with him in exchange for a million dollars. And at first, the young couple, they just dismiss this idea. It's crazy. It's ludicrous. But then they start to think about it. And they debate the idea of what they should do. And finally, incredibly, they decide to take up the offer. And at that point, Demi Moore's character says this. It's a very, very powerful, powerful moment. It's only my body. It's not my soul. It's only my body, it's not my soul. And so she goes ahead and she spends a night with the millionaire and she returns to her fiancé thinking, believing that it was only a physical act. It was only a matter of mechanics. Or a million dollars richer. Turns out that the night ruins everything. Brings distrust, brings pain, brings tension and it eventually leads to the breakup of their relationship. It turned out that it was not quite so easy to disentangle body and soul. As the couple had imagined, they thought sex with someone else was fine because it only involved a bodily activity, that it didn't affect the rest of their lives. The truth is we cannot compartmentalize ourselves in that way. And our society is trying to do that. Again, back to my days as a youth worker. Another visual illustration that I used to use to try to enforce this reality with young people. I used to take two pieces of paper. A pink piece and a blue piece, not very creative, representing two people, boy, girl. And I said to them, listen, you, you decide to have sex together. And at that moment, at that moment, you're connected at a very deep and intimate level. You become as one. And you used to stick the two pieces together with glue and leave it for a while. And I said, you know something, once you separate, once you break up, it's just a one-night stand, whatever. Whenever you walk away from each other, don't think it's a case of a simple and clean parting. That you can always go back to as you were. Because you know what happens? You leave something of yourself with that person. And then I used to take the piece of paper and just rip them apart. And what always happened was there were traces of the pink paper left on the blue and traces of the blue paper left in the pink. And it kind of made the point. This is not just a bodily thing. This involves my soul, my heart, my mind. It involves me at an emotional, psychological level. Okay, so lust is selfish. Lust is distorted, disordered sexual desire. Lust objectifies people. Quickly, that's a phone call, quite it commodifies sex. But how do we deal with it? How do we actually combat it? You see, lust is in the eye and in the mind of the beholder. And whenever we live in such a sexualized, sexually explicit culture and society that feeds this vice, that constantly bombards us with endless opportunities to lust, or so it would seem. Here's the question we must all ask ourselves. What are one of the key questions? What sorts of images and desires and expectations fill my mind and feed my heart every day? Another question. Is lust primarily or predominantly a male vice? 
Is it a greater problem or sin for men who at the end of the day, in fact at any time of the day, are turned on by sight, by visual stimulation? And the increased availability of material and opportunities for men to indulge this vice and this sin is is significant. And just as one example, new men's magazines, not the top shelf kind, they have invaded the marketplace. And although they may not be described as, well, they're not pornographic, they still thrive on appealing to sexual desire, disordered sexual desire. And pornography itself is a growing industry, and I'm not going to say a lot about this, but internet porn is just a few clicks away, and therefore increasingly available and popular. And statistics on this, and I know statistics can mean whatever you want them to mean, but statistics on this are depressing. And depressing in terms of within the church. And so there are now major challenges for anyone who wants to take these issues in Christian discipleship seriously. Who wants to walk as Jesus walked. Who wants to go through a process of the renewing of their minds. These are huge issues for us. And the number of people who have fallen on some of these issues is incredible. And failure is not final, and therefore I do need to say right right now at this point that there will be some people here, I have no doubt, who would readily admit they've made huge mistakes in these areas. And failure is not final. And we believe in the God of the second chance. And forgiveness is available. But let me quote Harriet Walker. Writing in the I newspaper this week, she said this, I am amazed and I'm baffled, sometimes heartbroken, by the fact that porn is now a normal part of a young man's leisure time. As say video games or football, there is no shame about porn. It's just something everybody does. Is it? Is that where we have got to as a culture and as a society? That it's now socially acceptable that everybody does it? And if it is, what does that say about where we've got to? And so there is no doubt that in dealing with the sin, we are going to need to think carefully about what images and what desires and what expectations do fill our hearts and fill our minds. Let me say this. Does what we watch and what we read and what we listen to speak truth about human sexuality? Does what you watch, read and listen to speak truth about human sexuality and its goodness? Or do they feed and fuel our lustful fantasies? Those are, I know, uncomfortable but yet very important questions. For anyone who does want to pursue a God-centered countercultural way of life along a path towards increasing Christ-likeness. And you know, the Bible warns time and time again about the dangers of lust. And Jesus himself was so uncompromising about this. To the point where many people really struggle with what Jesus said. You have heard it said, says Jesus, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And if your right hand causes you, or your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now I have no doubt that Jesus was exaggerating to make a point. But the point is well and truly made. Lust is a serious and spiritual life-threatening issue. But for many people the question is, well what does Jesus mean by looking lustfully? Well I want to suggest that that's actually not a great question. And the reason it's not a great question is because at the end of the day, I think we all know and have a fair idea what lust looks and feels like. We, we only kid ourselves if we try to search for definitions. We know. And I remember reading how it was once said that the difference between looking and looking lustfully is about five seconds. I'm not sure about that at all. But you know, a look is one thing. But a lingering look that prompts, promotes or creates unhealthy thoughts and desires, well that is something altogether different. And what we look at and how we look at other people are very real issues. I think one of the most intriguing lines in the book of Job, and there are many, many, many intriguing lines, I'm not saying this is the most, but one of the most intriguing lines, is this one here, where Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. See, this is about making a very strong, advanced commitment to living by God's standards. Here was Job, ahead of time, kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, a line I'm not prepared or I'm not intending to cross. I've made a covenant with my eyes. And I want to suggest that a covenant along those lines, made in advance, in fact made right now, and maybe particularly guys, would probably influence what we walk out of here and what we watch and what we read and what we listen to it would affect it quite profoundly. The Apostle Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, offered this advice, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. And that is a very effective tactic in our struggle with this deadly sin. Because if we make this or these kind of commitments ahead of time, it will probably be a whole lot easier to stay clear of situations and images and opportunities that just fan the flames of the sinful desire of lust. And in some ways, the more I've kind of thought about this, do you know it's not rocket science, so to speak? There's an element of common sense here. But I'll guarantee you this. See, within our culture which is increasingly trying to, and very convincingly actually, trying to squeeze us into its mould. The challenge to embrace biblical advice and God's standards are increasingly uncommon, unnatural and undeniable. It is so counter-cultural to embrace God's standards in these areas. But let me take a little of this a little further and offer some more thoughts for reflection. I'm nearly done. So you know, the thing about lust is that it thrives in privacy and isolation. 
And although many struggle with it at some level, the problem is we just never talk about it. And so we keep our struggles, and this one included, hidden from others. And despite the fact that we often feel guilty, maybe even ashamed, we hide our sin. Or we deny it. And we never quite get around to confessing it and dealing with it. And so I want to suggest that uh, lust's remedy requires these things. Community, openness and accountability. Maybe those are the three disciplines this evening. See, the problem with lust is that so often we try to tackle it alone. We make all sorts of resolutions. And then we mess up and then we beat ourselves up and then we dive back into it, sometimes to a deeper extent, and then the cycle begins all over again. number of people for who that is their story. And in combating lust in our culture, it is so important to be part of a community. I really believe it's so important to be part of a community where sex is not the constant topic of conversation. Where every little innuendo doesn't get made into a snigger. Where there is true friendship along with a clear understanding that good deep friendships between people of the opposite sex don't have to end up being sexualized. In other words, it's so important to be part of a community, something like a local church. Rebecca de Young on her book on the Seven Deadly Sins says this, The best advice then for resisting lust is not to get an internet filter, although you should do that too, but to have good friends. If we have genuine friendships in which we learn to give and receive love in a healthy and satisfying way, we will be less inclined to wander off looking for sham substitutes and quick fixes. Good friendships teach us to respect each other to offer appropriate physical affection, to appreciate and care for others without looking for something else in return, but to trust one another. And I suppose what I'm really saying is this, that the discipline of true Christian fellowship can be a strong help in this area. And in addition, there is, I believe, a place for appropriate openness and accountability as we journey along with others in community. And I know this is risky and it requires a certain degree of vulnerability, but one of the very practical and tangible ways to address the reality of lust in our lives is to be honest with someone else or a few around us and to ask for help. And that might mean finding one or two close trusted friends, same gender, who understand where we're coming from, who understand the path that we are trying to walk upon. And where we give them permission to ask us regularly about our lives and about our choices in this area, about our thought life, about what films we're watching, what TV programs we're watching, what magazines we're reading, what internet sites we're visiting, to ask us about our relationships with others and how we're going about conducting those. Because the prospect of knowing that we might have to own up to someone will often provide an extra restraint that stops us putting a foot on the slippery slope of indulged lust, leading us to go somewhere where we never wanted to go. Don't let lust thrive in privacy and isolation. Address it in community. Address it with openness and accountability. But you know what the starting point is? The starting point and the first place where lust has to be addressed and healed is in our relationship with God. And this might sound like a really obvious thing to say. 
But you know, you see, if you guard and nurture your personal relationship with God, if you keep returning to and focusing on the God who is love, then you will increasingly see other people through God's eyes. And that is key in this. That whoever you look at, you see them through God's eyes. And I guarantee it will totally change this issue for you. Where we notice people not as objects, but as human beings made in the image of an amazing God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote some incredible stuff. And he wrote about lust. And he said this, When we give in to lust... Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. You see, Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but rather with forgetfulness of God. And you see, as we address each of the seven deadly sins, the challenge and the importance of investing time and attention into our personal relationship with God can never be overstressed. If we forget that, if we forget God, whenever we are close to God, the tendency and the temptation to give in to any sin, including lust, is greatly reduced. But whenever you forget God, whenever you go for days, weeks, even longer without spending any real quality personal time with God in prayer and in feeding on his word, then the guard comes down. And I know this is true in my own life. And it is true in so many people's lives who I have talked to and who have been honest with me. That whenever they're struggling with whatever they're struggling with, including this issue, whenever you dig a little deeper and say, here, how's your prayer life? How is your times with God? Nine times out of ten people say, do you know they're virtually non-existent? I've let that whole area of my life drift. But you see, when you're close to God, and when you're nurturing that relationship, when you're guarding your heart, when you're practicing the holy habits, when you're carving time out of your busy schedule, yes, and you're spending time in the quiet place, listening for the divine whisper, whenever you're living close to God, then you start seeing people as God sees people. You start having a heart after God. You start recognizing that the call to holiness is so, so important. And therefore all sorts of alarm bells go off whenever you start watching stuff that you know you shouldn't be watching. When you start reading stuff you know you shouldn't be reading. Whenever you start lingering in your look. And so staying close to God, not forgetting God, is so critical. And I know what some of you are thinking, and we're done. Some of you are thinking, here, hang on a wee minute. He's missed something tonight. What's the virtue? The vice is lust. And okay, you've talked about the disciplines of community and openness and accountability, but what is the virtue to pursue? Let me get you to ask yourself that question. What is it? Is it love? Is that what you would say? Because love respects, doesn't it? Love appreciates those around us. With love there is no selfishness. Love is not self-seeking, according to Paul. Love is self-giving. Whereas lust, as we've said, it just seeks to use people as objects to satisfy our own needs and desires. So love, yes, love could be the virtue to pursue. 
But let me suggest an alternative virtue as we finish, and it's this, it's purity. And specifically the pursuit of sexual purity in terms of conduct and intention. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, right, pure, lovely and admirable should be. Think about such things. You see, if lust is in the eye and the mind of the beholder, and it is, then purity of thought and thinking about what is right and what is lovely and what is admirable, if that is where you go in your thought life, then there will be no space or opportunity for this deadly sin to grow and develop. It's whenever we we stop thinking about these sort of things and think about other things that we run against all sorts of problems. And so as we close this evening, and as I said at the start, I realize I have just scratched the surface and there's lots of questions I haven't answered and issues I haven't dealt with. But as we finish this evening, focus my eyes on you, O Lord. And I know... There are some songs we like, some songs we don't like. Some tunes we like, some tunes we don't like. But the reason I chose this was, was really for this verse. Focus my eyes on you, O Lord. Focus my eyes on you. To worship in spirit and in truth, focus my eyes on you. And, and if we can go away from here tonight and just say, yes, God, okay, I just want to focus my eyes on you. Well, that will help us to address this issue. It really will. So let's stand together and sing as we close. <laughs>